Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hayes, and coming up on today's episode, part two of our interview with Tim Lucas, film historian and film critic. Um, I was joined with a guest co-host, uh, Ted Haycraft, again for this episode. Uh, but first up, um, hope you guys are doing well. Um, I've been pretty consistent with my lockdown, which means I've been watching way too much stuff, which usually in... Um, times of uncertainty like that's a tendency I, I i mean i just hunker down and and it just it exacerbates all my um introvert uh uh, uh sensibility i guess and so just watching a movie at home was whatever um it's also one of my reasons to continue to embrace physical media especially if we get in a situation like europe's in where uh um the broadband's gonna have to be uh diminished so i mean i watched a ton of stuff this week um I have one of the things I, t- I typically watch when I do that is kind of it's like it's not a tier of your favorite movies or even your second tier favorite movies. It's somewhere down that way where it's like a movie you liked quite a bit, but you haven't seen in like five years, so or maybe more, so you can rediscover it again. Um, so first up on that was I watched Parallax View. It's on HBO Go right now, um, and I don't know if any of you got the the uh, Clute Blu-ray that uh, Criterion put on, but Pakula and um, Gordon Willis, when they work together, just, my God, I, Gordon Willis, just his ability to stage these amazing scenes and single shots in a very odd angle, like, is just, is just kind of breathless to watch. And the other thing I noted when watching it was there's this really amazing montage in the middle, uh, kind of a, um, like a Clockwork Orange film that Warren Beatty's forced to watch to indoctrinate him. And, um, it's really well edited, but if you've seen it, it it's hard to find. Um, one of Gordon Willis's first movies, uh, he, like, his, it's technically his second, I think. It's called End of the Road. Is really interesting movies. I won't, I won't say it's, like, wall-to-wall a great movie, but, like, the first two, three minutes of it are just some amazing filmmaking. And um, this seems like a polished version of it kind of even though that's that was a scene and this is just kind of like a more of a film essay which i mean to be fair willis probably didn't actually you know film most of the stills that they did as an editing technique but there's still to seem, seem to be some overlap too um i watched uh on her majesty's secret service uh in light of the lack of the bond movie that i was cautiously optimistic about um which we'll wait till thanksgiving um which is also a huge favorite of the co-host of today's episode, Ted Haycraft. And uh, Ted, if you're listening, I'm sorry to say it wasn't a good rewatch. At first I was into it. I know your love of Lazenby. Um, Part of me once is worried that I'm just doing the uh, unloved movie defender uh, thing where, but, and part of it was Lazenby's, um, his delivery of the of the catchphrase is he was the first non connery guy to have to do it, and maybe that just brought out some of the those lines are 
pretty bad. It's interesting because it's directed by Peter Hunt, who was a Bond editor up until that point, and he got into the seat. And so it's a really well-made movie, too, but uh, there's also a lot of a lot of force edit, editorial trickery in the movie. But um, what else did I watch this week? Um, oh, last night, uh, Carl Dude's Way. Um, that's, that's back into the initial category I was talking about with... Um, the one you haven't seen in a while like carlito's way is also one of those movies that uh, whenever i complain about the uh group think of critics what ends up happening or at least used to but maybe the internet changed it a little was that there was these arbitrary gang up with the group think on certain movies and there's this like really lazy narrative usually at the time that like i mean i guess carlito's way isn't as well respected just because it's De Palma working with uh, Al Pacino and Pacino doing a Puerto Rican accent. So maybe it's similar to Scarface, I guess. But it's, I like Scarface. They're, they're different movies, obviously. But Carlito's Way is just one of De Palma's best achievements and a career of a lot of great achievements. Just the last, like, 20 minutes, 30 minutes of that movie, like... Like, if you know the movie, basically, the last chase of the movie. Like, man, it's the, the, in the, if you've seen the De Palma documentary, uh, supposedly he said that when he was at a film festival watching the movie, he just flat out said to himself, I don't know if I can make a better movie than this. And it's kind of true, even though he, I think he followed it up with um, uh, Mission Impossible. So there's a lot of good set pieces in that, too. But uh, just the end is just palpitating. But um, so... Hopefully you guys are watching some interesting stuff and staying alive. Um, I it's just, I mean, I, honestly, we're all in this position of just unprecedented feelings and letting our minds wander. But um, the movies are just, I mean, everything. I I think last week I met at the time there's still like two or three movies still in production and everything now is shut down. Um, like. I got two. I had two interesting phone calls this week from uh, colleagues. Uh, one, basically, he had a job set up. He was working on a documentary, and um, it's pushed because they can't film people in person for a while. So he, so I mean, maybe. The, and then the second person I talked to is is the more hopeful spot of literally. She uh, was working on a movie that finished right under the line. It just. Um, it fin just finished its shoot. It wasn't like uh, Paul Schrader's movie had to stop five days of shoot, and he had this crazy message to his producers. But um, after it, but so my friend's movie finished shooting, and they're doing remote editing. But the movie's also supposed going to have some um, kind of intense VFX on it, and no idea how that's going to happen. Um, which I, you gotta imagine that could be done work from home, but. But maybe, maybe not. I mean, but you got to imagine also that budgets are going to have to expand some way to like accommodate this, and that doesn't make working in the film industry uh, all that um, desirable right now. I guess. Um, like I saw Ted Sarandos say something that uh, I think it was Ted Sarandos was talking about Netflix's imp or output and how it's not going to affect anything now, but all these things that should be shooting now are you know it's going to be what stuff that's going to come out at the end of the year it's not going to be there for and i mean i know the priority obviously is you know 
the health versus the economic thing, that's that's been something I've been weighing against where like is the damage gonna of the virus gonna be more economic or is it health? Or is it a thing where obviously we just need to hunker down, get the hospitals in good shape right now, um, and then worry about the economy. But I mean, or can we walk and chew gum at the same time? Um, but as for just future work, I don't know what's going on. So, um, well, anyway, that's enough with me. Uh, on to part two of our interview with Tim Lucas. <laughs> Tim, I, I wanted to mention when um, I first propo- proposed to Ted that getting you on the on the podcast, the first thing he said was, um, "Well, we can do an entire podcast just on the Mario Bava book alone." <laughs> I brought my book with to show uh, Shane. Uh, uh-huh. Got it out of the box. You know, I, I you should uh, you, I should uh, I'm, I should be ashamed. But I never sent my postcard in. The postcard's still in the box. Oh, oh well. So, I guess it's never too late. I You'd have to put extra postage that's, on it. That's now. true. But uh, yeah, so I, the Mario Baba, I think I, I think uh, we should hear a little bit about uh, a little bit, some of it, because the whole evolution of how did uh, what sparked that spark. I remember just thinking at the time. I think when I discovered you, uh, I just you became instantly one of my favorite writers on the film. So I don't think I had no clue on Baba, maybe other than maybe a couple of titles like oh that guy or, or the, that that movie or something, and then uh, so I just blindly sent the money in for the when I think when you first solicited for the book just thinking yeah. I just want to read I just want to see what Tim has to say about this guy but um, uh, not knowing anything about him and uh, you know and all of a sudden I find out Martin Scorsese's a fan of him and uh, and then of course this this book I don't know if there's a bigger book more lavish and more whatever it does seem to have initiated this trend of huge books I mean since the Baba book came out. There's been uh, Stephen Thrower's Nightmare USA. Oh yeah, the Fab Press. Now stuff, there's yeah. there's a huge book coming out now on Andy Milligan, yeah. uh, by you know, the, uh, from uh, Fab Press working in tandem with Nicholas Winding Refn. Um, it's Jimmy McDonough. It's his new edition of of uh, his book on on Andy Milligan, and I've heard that it's fifteen pounds. <laughs> well, I, I tell you what, Tim, it, it was your articles on Andy that, I mean, I'm thinking, I don't know if I really want to sit down and watch the films, but I love you writing about them. <laughs> Does that make sense? Well, that, that, yeah, um, yeah. The, the funny thing is, is that I, I had a funny feeling about Andy Milligan, and, and there were various uh, directors that I wanted to sort of commit myself to, to see what they were trying to say. And I remember I did an article on Ed Wood so that I could force myself to sort of go through all of his work and write about it. And it was my least favorite self-imposed assignment of anything I did for the magazine. I really didn't get a good feeling about the work in the end. I mean, it's it's competent in places. It's very personal in places, but it didn't speak to me in any interesting way. Uh, but when I sat down with Milligan, his work has like no directorial style, really. <laughs> Um, it's, it's completely reckless, but there is a very consistent personal message about, you know, what it is to be, you know, an artist in, you know, who is a complete outcast in his own world and who hates everybody that he sees. And, you know, it's like one character in one of the movies says, you're just one big hate. (laughs) And the Andy Milligan films are pretty much one big hate and, and they're hilarious and they're campy. 
and they they actually do have a pretty strong connection to like the uh, the Todd Slaughter uh, films from the 1930s and 40s in England, what they called strong meat pictures, um, you know, which were which were very theatrical, grand guignol sort of thing. Um, but I, I think Milligan's really interesting. And, and when I got to the last movie that I had of his, which was Monstrosity, it ended with the scene uh, that, that's taking place. You, you hear someone yell, cut, and then the camera pulls back slowly and you see all of the realities of filmmaking taking place around this core scene on the street somewhere in Los Angeles. And I thought, well, well, this proves that, you know, he, he was an artist. He had a real sense of, uh, you know, he wanted to share that, that experience, his experience as a filmmaker with his audience. Baba did the same thing at, at the end of uh, Black Sabbath, the, the European version of Black Sabbath, um, pulling away from a, a screen illusion to show the uh, the various machinations of the crew members to bring that scene to life. These would have been before Day for Night. Uh, yeah, well, Milligan would have been after, and Baba would have been before. So um, on, the, on, on the Baba book, so when did you realize this thing was becoming a much bigger thing than you had maybe originally thought it was? Well, I, I never really had a sense of the proportion of the book. I mean, I, I'll tell you, I started out originally, it was going to be an article in Cinefantastique, a career article, one of their retrospectives. But um, I didn't write that because my, my relationship with Cinefantastique deteriorated over the way they edited some of my material. Um, and so it sort of became a book project around that time. And I was keeping material and I was getting Xeroxes of tear sheets from other publications. People would send me things and I was collecting tapes. Um, and it got to be, you know, the time to actually decide whether I was going to do it or not. Um, because there were times uh, after that when I thought, well, maybe I won't write the book. Maybe, maybe I will write the book. And so... Um, when I when I really started to address myself to it, it couldn't have happened at a worse time because Video Watchdog was going monthly, <laughs> which meant that I the only work I could do on the on the book had to be between issues of a monthly magazine, and it ended up taking me seven years of actually writing the magazine the uh, the manuscript nonstop between issues. So. It was just a killing, punishing schedule. And then once I finished, Donna took four years to create the layout between monthly issues of Video Watchdog. I think we eventually went back to a bi-monthly schedule during that period just to give her additional time to work on the layout. And all throughout those latter stages, there were people on the Internet that were saying, you know, they're they're going to screw you. You know, you should really file a complaint with the Better Business Bureau. These people are taking your money. They have no intention of bringing the book out. And uh, then when the book finally came out, there was this wonderful, gratifying silence. <laughs> you know, it all stopped. And uh, some of the people that were most critical of us gave us favorable reviews. Uh you know, it, it was a wonderful thing. I remember getting on the Internet one night very in the wee hours of the morning just before going to bed and got a, an email from Lamberto Bava, Mario's son, 
which was a photograph of their entire family standing around him holding the book. And it just, it was a wonderful feeling of fulfillment to see that. And, and to hear him that he would, that he spent like a whole evening just paging through the book and uh, the sun came up without him realizing it. He was so engrossed in it. Yeah, I was. So I, he, no, go ahead. No, I, I just, just the, what I was going to say was the, the idea that you could actually repay something that meant so much to me um, and give them something back. You know, I, I wish that Mario himself could have seen it, but uh, Lamberto actually gave me a photograph that, you know, in which he declares me an honorary member of their family. So, so that's like the best review I could possibly expect. Well, I understand. I'm uh, looking at that thing on, I got it out last night knowing we were going to do this podcast today. And I just, all of a sudden it's like, you know, an hour later, I was supposed to be going to bed. I was like, oh, and I just couldn't put the book down because I hadn't looked through it uh, late recently. And I was just like, it's just a beautiful book. Um, did you, would you say Baba? Because the, the book is such a, an amazing thing that, that is that, is that your number? I mean, I know, I know this is terrible to ask because uh, I, I don't like that like this question asked, but is Baba your main director? Your fa your uh, your biggest one or is there it's weird but no not even close <laughs> <laughs> but i spent 32 years researching his career right okay. uh he he spoke to me in a very direct way and and people would ask me you know why did you pick him as a subject and i would say i think he picked me uh rather than i picked him because they just speak to me on a very personal level like i understand them and I know how to describe them and and get to the heart of them. And uh, that's also been my my relationship with with Joe Sarno's movies. And I'm writing about Joe Sarno now. Um, and it looks like that's going to become another huge thing. It's going to be two volumes. Uh, so um, you know, and he's not a particularly popular filmmaker, but I want to use my insights to hopefully bring more of an audience to him because I think he did very important work. Well, I'll be looking forward uh, to that. That's for sure. I'm, I'm looking for a publisher now. Um, 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 yeah, have... Chris, I guess one of your favorites, I think we've talked about this, would it, uh, or I, what I think it is, would because it's Leone, Sergio. I, I, have to, yeah. I, have, I have to bring Sergio, but... We, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's okay, Ted. You can do it. Well, I, I would have to say that Sergio Leone... There was a time when I was about 12 years old, 13, when I saw a lot of movies close together that really put me on the road to who I became. I mean, it was like finding the company that tell you who you are. You know, we, we are your tribe. And especially when I went to see Once Upon a Time in the West, I mean, I didn't go to see Once Upon a Time in the West. I went to see the co-feature, which was an Elvis Presley Western uh, called Charo. But they got the uh, the showing times mixed up, and so I had to sit through Once Upon a Time in the West to get to the Elvis movie. <laughs> and I felt, I, I mean, I've, I've said that I that I felt raped seeing the Leone film for the first time because I just felt like this movie pushed me back in my chair and ripped my shirt open and had its way with me. Um, because I I was never so engrossed or so traumatized um, and so completely swept away by a movie. 
Um, and looking back, I think, it, I think a lot of that had to do with its silences and its use of, of sound effects and and the uh, just the operatic quality of it. Um, but anyway, when when the movie ended, I actually thought about sitting there and seeing the Elvis movie, and I ended up getting up, putting my jacket on, and to this day, I've never seen Charo. <laughs> and not only that, but I sort of made a pact with myself. I knew that Leone had made other movies. I knew that he made the Clint Eastwood Westerns. Had you seen them? No. Okay. Um, and I didn't see them deliberately for another 10 years. Wow. I told myself I was just going to look at that movie whenever I could see it again for 10 years. At least, and I don't know that I made the pact with myself at that exact point, but it was over the period of time when it, when it came to television, first on the ABC uh, Sunday night movie. Um, and it's just that the movie spoke to me so personally and, and so directly. I mean, Quentin Tarantino said that he had the same experience when, when he saw the movie for the first time. It made him want to be a filmmaker. And to me, it just, it told me that I had to write about film, you know? I wish in retrospect that it had told me, you you need to be a film director, but I wasn't that bright. So I just became the, uh, the film critic. So uh, but it was huge. It was a huge event in my life seeing that movie because I didn't like Westerns. And, uh, so that's what you did to the Eastwoods. You, you had to boy. Yeah. I put those off, you know, and, and when I finally got around to them, you know, I, I've done the audio commentaries. Oh, yeah. I, I, I listened to them. <laughs> uh, um, but, uh, you know, and, and they're all wonderful in their own way, but they are not equal. I would say even the three of them are not equal to what he accomplished in Once Upon a Time in the West. I guess, you know, I had the, I, so I had the little luxury of seeing Sergio kind of grow in front of me. Uh, cause you, mm. And you got, to, you came full blown on the masterpiece. But I was so enamored of that. I, I, I convinced my eighth grade English teacher to do, uh, make a turn, I do my term paper on uh, Clint Eastwood. And yeah. I, and I ended the, the thing going, well, I think he'll be a superstar one day. And uh, I had a lady up the street make me a poncho for my 12 inch uh, G.I. Joe. <laughs> So that oh, the yeah. G.I. Joe could be a, a man with no name. I thought I thought you were going to say that you wore it to school. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, but I was I was looking for a poncho. There was a there was an art store that had some hippie clothes in the corner they sold. Yeah. And I would I would every time we went there I'd go in there looking for a poncho because I was yeah. determined to get little cigars and poncho and wear that because I I you know I was all the whole man with no name and, the, and then when once when I finally got to see What's Upon Out of the West I was like it was a whole different level. I mean it, I just you know. I remember, I, I think my joke is, uh, one of my myths I like to talk about is uh, when I saw Once Upon a Time in America, the theater, I knew I was seeing the butchered version, and I, I cried, I wept as I watched it, knowing that mm. that we were not getting the full Sergio effect here in this film. Speaking of which, that's, I guess, how I first talked to you on the phone, uh, was when I... I called Donna about some video watchdog magazine stuff because I was helping out at a comic book store. But I said, uh, can I, is Tim available to talk? And I got you on the phone because you had mentioned that James Woods talked about seeing the long version of Once Upon a Time in America or yeah, something like that. Yeah. And, and that's what uh, uh, you were gracious enough to let me uh, rattle on and slobber as a fanboy on the phone with you <laughs> on that first time. No, I mean, I, I don't know what he saw, but I'd love, love to see a, a more complete version of the film. Yeah, it's there. It hasn't yet. 
but it, they've been working on it. The latest version, they finally pulled a Blu-ray out. With, it had has the uh, what's her name, um, Nurse Ratchet. What's her actress name? I can't think. Louise. Yeah, uh, the, the, Fletcher. Yeah, the Louise Fletcher parts are back in it, but the the, the quality is not that good. So. Right. Did you end up doing a commentary for uh, all the Leone westerns? Just the three Eastwood uh, dollars movies. Okay, but you've. So I wanted to segue into talking about the commentary process. How many you? How many you've done? Over a hundred by now, you say? I just did a hundred and ten. <laughs> I was trying to keep up, Tim. I don't know if yeah. I can. Ted, I know. Ted I know. was saying he was trying to buy every one of them as it came out, but um, yeah, I wish I could help, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to make money. Well, so I mean, how did the process start? Just you uh, look at your writing. There, you might be an obvious person to to. Yeah, for a long time, the ones that I was doing were just the ones on Mario Bava. I, I think that people uh, start they start out by typecasting you. You know, you you start to do commentaries based on what are your known areas of expertise. Um, but uh, fortunately, after working on them for a while, I started working for for Kino Lorber. And uh, there's a fellow there named Brett Wood, who was a contributor to Video Watchdog, a longtime reader. And he knew that my range of film expertise was broader than just that. And so he encouraged me to, to do other uh, commentaries, uh, which I think started out from horror, but then branched out into other, other areas like European art films and such. Well, you even done Compulsion. With, uh, I was really... Yes, uh, that was an interesting one. I thought um, you, that's you, the process. They actually will submit a list to me when they have new acquisitions, and they'll they'll say, "Let us know what you would like to do," you know, and then we'll let you know which ones you can do. Uh, you, gotta, uh, you they need to go. They need to upgrade their Richard Lester titles and get you to do the commentaries on those. Uh, well, I, I might be able to do them. I mean, they're they're not what I would think of as. I I don't think of myself as having a particular expertise about Richard uh, Lester. I've seen the movies, but you know, I have often doing a commentary is the excuse that I need to do a lot of study, um, you know, and become better acquainted with something. That that actually happens, you know, more more often than you might think. And I always think that a commentary is successful to me is if if I learn something new from the process of having done it. Do you have any uh, personal commentary favorite commentaries? My my favorites that I've done. Um, not just because of the way they turned out, but but for the opportunity. I loved the box set of the Alain Rogrier films that I did for the BFI. That was doing commentaries for five very obscure and very challenging art films um, that I think had only been written about in academic journals before um, I did my commentaries. And I always, you know, I, I hadn't seen all of the films before. I'd seen a couple of them, um, but they were all, you know, engrossing. Uh, to me, and it was an extremely fulfilling thing to work on because Rocrier has always been one of my favorite novelists as well. Well, I, I actually meant overall, not just your own, but anyone's like favorite commentaries. Like Ted and I always talk about the Limey commentary, and we love them. Oh, the Catch Twenty Two. Yes, Soderbergh's good commentaries. Actually, uh, other people's commentaries. I mean, actually, that would have been my first go-to choice the uh the catch-22 commentary by by mike nichols and uh, and steven soderbergh I, th I thought that was superb um 
you've had a chance to uh, do a, uh, a Danger Dog. I believe you did that with John Philip Law. Uh, do, you, mm-hmm. do you enjoy doing the commentaries where you get to bounce off someone, or do you? I, I, I know with a Tim Lucas commentary, you get wall to wall pack. It's jammed full. Uh, there's no, there's no uh, hardly any pause unless you make. Well, a that's. It has a lot to do with the way I I go at things. I mean, with with the commentaries that I do now, I I basically. You know, it's always a bit like scoring a movie with music. You know, you look where it, it should drop in and, and when it should drop out, when you should allow soundtrack in. And, um, you know, so it's it's like it has a lot to do with time codes and then reading things to see how long it actually takes to read what what I've what I've written. And a certain amount of dramatic sense has to go into the way I read. Um, the actual recording process is my least favorite, and and now it's become my uh, my favorite part to to edit the commentaries, and to and to be able to actually a lot of people just turn over their raw track to the the disc producer, but but I'm doing my own production, uh, editing on on the commentaries now, and just leaving it to them to like tweak things here and there if they want or if if there's a censorship problem. So getting back to what you said about. Uh making uh, it helps you study and get into it. so are you actually uh, i don't want to you know reveal super secrets here or anything but sounds like maybe you once in a while will pick a film that you are not super knowledgeable about and it but your confidence on that you will provide a, a, a in the long run you will get to a, a a very enjoyable commentary but you're gonna have to do a lot more homework as opposed if you you know baba you could probably do it in your sleep you know uh, well, I, well, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm exaggerating there, but is that is that because I'm just thinking, um, uh, I, I, not, you know, how to tell us, you know, uh, anything like that. But I, I, I was going to a point there. But anyway, so you you do see it as a challenge uh, every once in a while for yourself. I do. I mean, like I will pick out a thing like like um, I mentioned Whirlpool earlier, which is like a 1970 uh, Spanish slash British co-production. And uh, it was actually the first X-rated horror film in America. Um, it came out in 1970 through Cinemation Industries. And I was always, I, I had a sort of longing feeling about seeing that movie because it had been forbidden to me at the time when it came out. And then it completely disappeared off the face of the earth for decades. Um, so when it was offered to me, I said, yes, I'll definitely do it. But actually, when it came to the point of, of writing about it, there weren't a lot of sources where I could get any sort of meaningful information. I mean, a lot of the people that worked on the film did so under pseudonyms. It was made under sort of shady circumstances. So a lot of it had to come from me and just just primal associations and uh, observations of what was going on with the film and with its soundtrack. And and it ends in a particularly brutal way that I really do think must have convinced uh, Wes Craven uh, of, of how to do Last House on the Left, because it's it just ends with a very brutal murder and then like cuts to black and you've got this romantic music on the soundtrack, it's exit music. Um, I, I think that Last House on the Left actually had more to do with that film, because it came from the same distributor um, as it came from Virgin Spring. I, I really think the Virgin Spring idea came along later, maybe mid-production. So when you make those connections, and, and it's all on you, do you yeah. uh, are you fearless? You just say, okay, I'm going to go for this, because 
you know, uh, there's always a chance somebody's going to come, the director himself or the writer or ever going to come back and say, well, Tim, you're way off the mark. You don't, you put that aside, you don't even think about that. Um, no, I really think that it's, I think that everybody has a valid point of view. And it, as long as they can put their point of view into language that, you know, conveys its meaning and can attract people or turn other people off. I mean, all I can do is really put my own feelings into the best language, the best communicative language that I can, and then put it out there. And people seem to respond well to that. I just did one on uh, a commentary on a movie, Joseph Strick's The Balcony, based on the Jean Genet play. Um, and this movie stars uh, Peter Falk and Shelley Winters. It's, it's an art film, but it was made with big stars um, back in the 60s. This was also has Leonard Nimoy hmm. um, just before he did his uh, uh, Star Trek pilot. Uh, so it's, it's a very interesting movie from the standpoint of of actors, many of them were associated with uh, leftist politics at the time, and they had been blacklisted. And so there were, a lot of the people in the film were working together on that ground, obviously. Um, but it was an attempt to make a sort of commercial art film, because Joseph Strick, the director, thought that Americans should be making art films just like people in Europe were making art films, that in America we didn't have that, that discipline or that mode of expression. So I was able to construct that commentary mostly out of digging into newspaper archives and pulling out quotes and uh, and also responding to the film directly. And you can sort of see it as a, a premonition of movies like uh, the, uh, the Manchurian Candidate and especially Dr. Strangelove, uh, where you get black comedies about politics and totalitarianism and and fascist takeovers. Well, uh, how do you approach um, commentaries like something like um, Lost Highway or uh, Last Year at Mary Mad? Like, how do you, something that's abstract, are you trying to, are you going to come up with a potential theory for what's happening in the movie? Are you informational? Are you reacting just to the movie as it comes along? Yeah, basically the last thing. It's it's basically me reacting as, as I go along because my my deadlines are tight and i don't have a lot of time to really deliberate uh too much about things it's best to just plunge in with the feel and uh and write about the first thing that comes to my mind when i look at something as 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 the script comes along um i may move things around uh for for greater convenience or it may become more important to say something different up front for example um but uh, yeah, so it, there's really like no one formula uh, to go in, but a lot of it is is just very instinctive, I have to say, uh, and going with what with what I feel uh, needs to be talked about during an, an individual scene. Um, I started working on one uh, a couple of days ago, and I've looked at the movie now a couple of times, and um, I've done some reading about it. And uh, today I spent uh, most of the day just uh, cataloging the different song cues or music cues in the film and about where music is used. So I, I think music is going to become an important dimension of the uh, of the commentary. And, uh, you know, I, I, the more I do these, the more I really do want to get away from whenever an actor comes on screen cataloging their, their performances. I would much rather distill it to, you know, 
a sort of little portrait, you know, of, of why they are important as an actor on the basis of just a few performances, then going into a whole uh, catalog. Yeah, I was going to ask. And, I was going to ask you about being worried about just all of a sudden the commentary just becomes a walking, uh, 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 an oral IMBD. Because um, yeah. I, I, I like with the Leonis, I wanted to hear, I wanted to hear Tim's, you know, artistic uh, interpretation and, and and takes, and I you know the, all about the as opposed, I, you know, the, the, I could go to the book or IMBD to look up the actor, you know. So right. I'm sure you're, but I'm sure you have to put some of that in there for, for the people that don't go to their internet or books. I guess you got to put it's a sort of a requirement yeah. well it's it's also sort of a requirement if your running time is two and a half to three <laughs> hours <laughs> yeah, true. okay you have you have some niches you know to fill in true uh, when you get to that good point there, you're there's more commentaries in demand right now even with streaming right are you doing, uh, are you doing yeah. more oh sure oh, yeah. yeah constantly i've i've got beyond the one that i'm doing now i have like another eight booked um so, you know, and more will, will probably come after that. I hope, I hope they continue to come in. Um, so I, like I say, they give me a list and I pick titles off the list and then they, they sort of pick the ones that they want me to do from those that I've picked while assigning others to other people because they may have, you know, other, other strengths in that area. I just, I worry cause I found that I've been listening to a lot less commentaries lately just cause of, uh, I remember when Filmstruck came out, I was just, that was a reason I wasn't too big into it and streaming's don't seem to be offering it, but you have these movies being released with better transfers and this gives you an opportunity to talk about different movies that way. So I, 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 it's nice that at least one good thing is still thriving in the, in the age of the streamers. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, really the, the, uh, the, the hard media, the, uh, the actual discs are, are so important because they're, they're really taking the place now of, of what magazines uh, have been for a long time there. You've got the interviews with people. You've got the commentaries. Um, you've got video essays. Um, it, it's really the whole, I mean, I, I can remember when, when Cinefantastique used to be the only source of an onset visit. Um, and then entertainment tonight came along on television and they took that same idea from Cinefantastique and would visit sets on television. So, and then Cinefantastique became dispensable. You know, so you see these things come along um, and really what magazines like Video Watchdog and, uh, and other magazines were doing throughout the 90s and into the 2000s. It's all being expressed now through through uh, Blu-rays in the in the supplementary material, like the uh, uh, the wonderful things that Constantine Nazar has been doing with the with the Universal uh, archival releases, the uh, the classic horror from Universal releases from shout factory uh and also their their hammer uh titles he's been supervising both of those constantine has and, and he's been doing just superb work and and getting people um who are who are widely published on these subjects to to chip in and uh you know so so they're really like crash courses in uh, they're very educational is that the reason why the video watchdog isn't a physical copy anymore i mean between that I and the internet I think it, well, yeah. I think that all that had a lot to do with it. It's, uh, I think that more than most magazines, we had something something timely built into our nature because people want to read about what's wrong with releases before they spend their money on them. 
And so when people online started reporting things immediately, you know, we might have had to wait two, even four months before we could get information into print. Um, you know, and so even it's like the authority that you bring to the job really doesn't have anything to do with it in, in, a, in a fight with immediacy. People really want some immediate thing, uh, an immediate answer to their question. And at the same time, it, uh, their requirements of what they need from their information diminish um, because, you know, they just want quick bursts of information. They don't want to have to read a full essay. And in Video Watchdog, we would we would have no limit requirements placed on our, our essays. If someone wanted to fill an entire issue with a, with a, with a story, you know, we would consider that. Some of our pieces were, were quite lengthy. I want to real briefly go back into the screenwriting. So um, uh, how many more scripts have you written after uh, the Naked Lunch thing? Like I got uh, Man with the Kaleidoscopic Eyes. Oh, yeah. yeah, Man with Kaleidoscope Eyes is, is the big one. That one is still under option by Joe Dante and Spectre Vision. Um, you know, and they're supposedly lining up cast for it. They, they basically have to still find the guy to play Roger Corman. And uh, they've always been trying to find that guy uh, as the first component and then build a supporting cast around him. But that hasn't been working. So they're now trying to create an all-star supporting cast and attract a key player. I heard Bill Hader uh, on a podcast was... talk about doing a read-through with this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, back in October of, I think, 2016, there was a live table read at the Vista Theater of, of the uh, script, which was promoted as the greatest film never made. Um <laughs> And uh, it was a, a huge evening, apparently. They had, uh, in the audience, there was Peter Bogdanovich and uh, Jonathan Demi, who, uh, before he passed away. Uh, Roger Corman was there and actually took part in the reading. Um, Bill Hader played Corman uh, as the main character in, in the story. And uh, Joe Dante did the uh, narration on the stage. Um, and they got a standing ovation and they filled up the theater, turned 300 people away. It was a hugely successful evening, and we thought things would go fast after that, but they haven't. Um, that's so, entertainment. Yeah, it's entertainment, yeah. So actually, it's it's taken so long to try to get this thing off the ground that I, I wrote it as a novel, um, and I'm trying to find a publisher for the novel now. Um, and... Uh, also, it sort of discouraged me in terms of writing more screenplays. Everybody's been telling me all through these years that what you really need to have is a bunch of unproduced scripts in store because when your picture gets made, people are going to want to read your other scripts. All this stuff on spec. Yeah, but it's, you know, I, I wrote I wrote one that was uh, actually fairly similar to, uh, to Man with Kaleidoscope Eyes called Me and the Orgone, which was based on Orson Bean's a uh, book about uh, his experiences with with uh, and therapy. And I read this when I was a teenager. And then after I finished the Baba book, I read it again. And I realized, you know, that it really could be told as a romantic comedy. And so I got Orson's permission to adapt it and uh, wrote it, showed it to a few people, got very enthusiastic responses to it and nothing, you know, so. Uh, I remember uh, Orson warning me about this. He said, you know, 
He said, I don't think you're going to have a chance of getting this thing produced. He says he loved the script, but he said, I, I just don't think I don't see this getting made. Um, but he said, you know, I didn't I didn't see um, uh, becoming uh, what is it? Uh, the John Malkovich movie. What was it called? Being John Malkovich. Being John Malkovich. He was in that. And he said, I didn't think that that was going to get made either. So what do I know? Um, but, uh, you know, Joe Dante told me that he thought that it was a better script than what we had with me and the Kaleidos man with kaleidoscope eyes at the time. Um, that's gone through further drafts since then. Um, but, uh, and now Orson passed away about a month ago. And so I really don't know where that stands. I mean, I, I may end up having to take my, it's based on a book. I may end up having to adapt that screenplay into a novel um, in order to get it out there um, or maybe just just publish the script. I mean, Orson gave me permission to do whatever I needed to do to get the thing out there. Um, so it's it's kind of a heartbreaking business. And I would much rather do something that I that I knew would get exposed, you know, get get a readership, get an audience. Heart, yeah, um, well, Shane's experiencing that somewhat. Uh, yeah, getting the uh, working uh, as a film editor here, he's you know always going from one job to another. Yeah, uh, you know how he goes, don't, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and also I, I find from what I see, know of people's lives when they're like working in this business all the time, trying to get new work, it's you know Orson Welles said it's no way to live, and you know he said that toward the end of his life, and. I'm closer to the end of my life now than I am to the beginning. And so it's, it's really not a lifestyle that attracts me anymore. Um, I'm, I'm happy. I'm perfectly happy living the way I am. Um, I think I want, we should probably start to wind down, but I wanted to ask okay. lastly about um, the new Beverly blog. I, I, I love the stuff you guys are writing on the new Beverly blog. Oh, well, I mean, I, I love working for them. They're they're very prompt with their payment, and uh, you know they 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 always want me to come to them with ideas. But I I, I, I do love what they're what they're doing, and I love writing for them. I I, I uh, I'm just astounded by uh, Quentin's writings. I I start laughing out loud because I love the way he also he'll just go off on tangents. You know, mm -hmm. he sits on one subject, but then also he's he's he'll single on Charles Bronson. And also he's over here, and then anywhere he'll, he'll bring it back. But it's just a wonderful. Everybody has their own style. And yeah, I, I love his his enthusiasm. I, I know he got really fired up about Ralph Meeker for a while, <laughs> and you know it. So I've been paying special attention to Ralph Meeker when he pops up in things. Yeah, apparently Leo uh, uh, DiCaprio was uh, entranced by Ralph Meeker too. He came uh -huh. back, Who's this Ralph Meeker? You know, and Quint was more than happy to, <laughs> to go on about him. Yeah. I could sit here all night and talk to Tim, but I'm sure he's got a commentary to record or a book to write. So yeah, we could, we may end up having to do Wonderfest this way this year. Yeah, <laughs> sure. I'll bring, uh, Shane can bring, bring their equipment or something. Yeah. So, but yeah, Wonderfest is a, it's a wonderful thing. And I think, you know, when I first met you, I, I, I uh, it was uh, Joe Dante there. It was there that weekend. And I uh, approached you and said you were one of my favorite writers. I compared you to a couple other ones. I said, and I, I compared you. I said you were better. I thought I enjoyed yours better than this other one. And the first thing you said, well, well that's a good writer. I like him too. Uh, you were very <laughs> gracious. Uh, but uh, no, I just, I think I, my, what I would love to talk more about, but this would just, we touched upon it some, but the, the, getting, adjusting your eyes, your critical eyes to 
watching a, a Sarno film or a Milligan film or a Franco film or a Bava film, I have a bad habit, like I said before, I, 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 or maybe I told this to Shane earlier, that I like to read about this stuff. Or, you know, the, the Rodney and, and Troy doing the Paul Nashy cast, you know, Paul, Paul Nashy. You know, people would say, look at these films and go, this is, this is, uh, what is, this is bad filmmaking. This is not good. Or this, this is weird. Or I don't understand this. Or, you know, and, uh, to see the, the, um, the critical eye that you guys bring to these, these directors and their films is so, uh, astounding to me and, in, and intrigues me. Uh, Cause you know, I think, uh, Martin, Martin Scorsese once said how American film fans we're 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 grown we grow up with a hollywood style of filmmaking you know and, and the camera's invisible the editing's invisible everything's yeah. invisible and, and everything wraps up and uh so part of that you know and then you know you you go you have the godard the antonioni's the fellini's everybody you know so okay they put them on the pantheon but what about these guys you know the, the sarno and the milligans and the, and the bavas and why aren't they known more or are they supposed to stay in their corner or you know, that's what I think is just intriguing about uh, what you see and how you approach these things and how they, I guess you just, they speak to you at some point. Well, really, the, the thing that got me into Mario Bava in the first place is because I knew from the little bit that I'd seen of, of his films that they all struck me as being extremely well made. But then I would read reviews in Leonard Balton's movies on TV book, you know, and they would always be bombs. You know, so uh, why do you think that? Why, 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 why that disconnect there? No, I think it was just an, an automatic bias against a certain kind of film. If it didn't have stars, you know, they would see that as like a mark against it. Um, if it was dubbed, you know, certainly that would be a mark against it. But, um, you know, especially with like, if you look at the more you, I should say, the more I look at Jean Luc Godard's films, the more I can see his influence on Franco. Um, and and Franco will say that that Godard was one of his favorite directors of that time, so there's there's a very definite connection there, an, an aesthetic connection, and what really drew me to Bava was that I saw the same character in his movie Kill Baby Kill that appeared in Fellini's movie Toby Dammit, the episode in Spirits of the Dead, and the Fellini film got extraordinary reviews and the Baba film was cast off as a bomb. I mean, the reviewers may have just looked at the title and assumed it was a bomb and didn't go to the screening or, or whatever. But I thought, well, what, what is the difference here? What am, what am I not seeing? And what I wasn't seeing is the pretentiousness that other critics were bringing to the task of, of reviewing films, that it was a very, uh, it was like almost like levels of society. It's that, weird how uh, groupthink just takes over for some critics. And... Yeah, and and in, in the in the course of my research, I found out that Baba and Fellini were great friends, and that at one point they actually had offices that were just down the hall from one another, and they would send messages to each other on a little uh, convertible truck. <laughs> and the guy that wrote the uh, the uh, screenplay for for Toby Dammit published a magazine. A sort of literary magazine in Italy called Il Delatore, and before they published their, or when they published their last issue, they said their next issue was going to be a special issue devoted to the films of Mario Bava. This would have been the first time Bava's work had ever been covered in any kind of serious detail, but they ceased publication before it could happen. So, 
you know, I found out from that 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 this fellow, uh, Bernardino Zapponi was his name, um, had been a fan of Baba's, and he brought that information to the Fellini film when he wrote the script for it. And oddly enough, Fellini had read a novel of his, uh, Zapponi's, and thought that he, he was a kindred spirit and wanted him to write this this thing with him. And when he looked up his telephone number, he found out that he lived in an apartment directly across the street from his office. So it was like it was kismet. You know, they had to work together. Um, so I, I love finding these little connections that exist between people and that pull each other. And I mean, my relationship to Bava and his relationship to Fellini and my relationship to Fellini, it's all, you know, it's, it's a weird little galaxy. Well, and uh you know, people forget. I keep the, like with Tarantino that his company name is a band apart, taken from a yeah. Godard film. Yeah. I think, and in fact, um, I just watched for the first time. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say for the first time, but I watched. Um, what did I watch? Oh, I watched. Uh, I watched Band Apart. Uh, I watched, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm sitting there watching this, you know, with all the Tarantino behind me and all this other stuff behind. And I'm saying, this is like this is like a fan film by Bette Godard. But it's on the, but on a more intellectual level. But it's like uh, there's tons of Easter eggs. It's like all these things that he loves. That it, it's almost like a, I could see this is a Tarantino film, but it's over made over in France by Godard, in a way. Yeah. But it, but it, it's done. The intellectuals grabbed Godard and took him from themselves. I guess maybe I don't I don't know. But I'm I, I'm you know I can't articulate as well as you can, Tim. That's why we talked uh, talked to you. Um, but it was just I was amazed how. I was sitting there going, I'm enjoying this film, thinking, oh, it's going to be Godard, I'm going to have to do a little, I'm going to have to, and I, it was a total opposite. And uh, I think I see what Quentin sees in him that I didn't realize till now. You know, it took me a while to get into that. And yeah. the, the, the mixture is just amazing, the, you know, with Quentin's films and, and the mixture, you know, that, again, that high and proud, low brow, middle brow. I don't even like to say those terms. Uh, I, you know, to me, it's just all one big, wonderful world of cinema, but... Yeah, well, the great thing about Quentin's films is that they really are, they give the audience credit for being film literate, which is something that so many other productions don't. Um, I mean, they will, t- if you try to get a reference, you know, into a film, and they'll say, people will never get that, you know, in, in the Midwest. And I said, well, I live in the Midwest and I wrote that, you know. Uh, people just don't, don't know. They think that because they're in Los Angeles, they know more about the film business. But I mean, Entertainment Tonight's been on the air since the 70s. I mean, people are immersed in the film business and in uh, in film literacy if if they follow any any kind of you know, broadcast movies, streaming movies. I mean, people know a lot more than they're giving credit for, and he he puts it all in into uh, the movies. So, like in in doing uh, it's like Inglorious Bastards, for example, it's a war picture, but he samples music from spaghetti westerns and uh, from a Ponte Corvo movie and, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. The cat people, uh, you know, and it, it's all there to sort of be sorted out and appreciated. And the more that you recognize and appreciate, the better you like those movies, unless you're one of those people who thinks, oh, he's stealing all this, you know, because they recognized it. They think he's stealing all this. No, he's making use of it. You know, which is just what what Franco did with Godard. Well, yeah, and you know, I, I I love the book and, and the uh, Christopher Frayling's Sergio Leone's biography. He says Sergio was at a festival and he sees Bud Bedeker and he he's running after Bud. He goes, Bud, Bud, I I love you. I stole everything from you. 
<laughs> and when I and sure enough, when I started watching the Butterker films, I'm like, oh my gosh, I see where Sergio's getting this stuff. But you know, yeah. then Sergio took it to a whole different stratosphere. Yeah. yeah, it's like when Fellini and Ken Russell met. They they said, you know, oh, the British Fellini, you know, the Italian Ken Russell, <laughs> you know, and embraced. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we yeah, I, I love I love those stories. I when I I got to meet John Borman one time, and I remember when I was watching Point Blank, and the footsteps going, you know, the footsteps that Lee Marvin's walking that down the the LAX thing. Yeah, and I was yeah. I remember seeing that. I'm like, wait a minute. Uh, that's kind of like the phone ringing in Once Upon a Time in America, you know, and, 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 and sure enough, when I talked to John, uh, he says, yeah, I, I was talking to Sergio and Sergio goes, yeah, I stole that from you, John. <laughs> so I was like, oh my gosh, I was actually able to pick something like that and figure yeah. it out. So I did want to ask you about the Nick Cave uh, inspired novella you mentioned. Oh, yeah. Writing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, well, that's an interesting story because it's, it's ongoing and uh, it's, it's something that's just, over, outgrown its its original conception. Uh, I was originally approached by a couple of guys. I think they were in the UK asking me if I would consider writing a short story for an anthology that they wanted to do based on Nick Cave songs, inspired by Nick Cave songs. So I, I picked a couple of songs and came back to them and they said, oh, no, those are already taken. And anything I came up with, uh, or sorry, that's already been taken. So then I found that he had done uh, a CD release that was a lecture called, uh, I think, The Secret Life of the Love Song. And because um, his title slightly different than mine. Um, and what it was was a lecture about the history of love songs, the nature of love songs and the different kinds of love songs that exist. And he illustrated his, his points in the lecture by performing five different songs. And so I thought, well, this structure appeals to me. Um, so what I will do, you know, and they, they, they said, yeah, you can, you can do that. It, it encompassed five of his individual songs. Most of them were from the boatman's call. Um, so what I wrote was, was from the standpoint of, of a lecturer standing in front of an audience and performing songs that he wrote himself and then talking about them and, and weaving stories out of these these songs. So what I did for the songs was I wrote uh, lyrics to take the place. So it was like poetry, you know, interrupting prose. And the prose, you know, goes into some philosophical abstractions and and uh, digressions. But uh, you always come back to a new kind of song. Um, and what happened was, is that uh, after after I had uh, signed a deal with PS Publishing to do the book, uh, finally, the, it was this is like almost 10 years after I had written the original draft that PS Publishing said that they would publish it. Uh, a friend of mine uh, from, from Facebook, her name is uh, Dorothy Moskowitz-Falarski. She had formerly been the lead vocalist in a 1960s group called the United States of America. They recorded for Columbia one of my favorite psychedelia albums. It was like an early electronica psychedelia album. And they only made one record, but it's, it's enough. I mean, it's just a classic. And uh, she's one of my favorite vocalists of all time. And uh, we became friends on Facebook and... 
I, I don't remember exactly how she came to read the manuscript. I think she just asked. She was curious about my creative writing. And she said, these, these songs, do you have music that exists for these? And I said, no, I have a rough idea of how they would go, but, you know, not, not really. There's no recordings or anything. And she said, well, you could, would you be interested in letting me try my hand at, at writing music for them? And so we began to collaborate. And uh, she would help me to fine-tune the lyrics to make them easier to sing. And uh, so she had definitely a, a great role to play in in fine-tuning my lyrics and and bringing music to them. And so we've been swapping things back and forth through email recordings uh, that, that she does at home. Uh, she's got a microphone like I do, and sometimes I would just like give her a vocal impression of how I imagined the thing sounding. And uh, then she would send me back some beautifully fully formed thing. Um, and so she's been doing her recordings in garage band and uh, she befriended uh, another Facebook friend of mine, the guitarist Gary Lucas from Captain Beefheart's magic band and gods and monsters. And he played with Jeff Buckley on the grace album. And uh, he said, would you like some guitar? <laughs> and we said yes absolutely uh and so uh gary uh added guitar to a couple of the tracks somebody's gonna have to come up and go you need some cowbell <laughs> <laughs> you need some cowbell um so anyway there's there's five songs in all um so it, it'll be something like a, a soundtrack ep and uh, we've also got uh, Mike Fornatale, who's, who's been a vocalist and guitarist with reformed versions of The Left Bank and Moby Grape <laughs> over the years. He uh, is, I think, a Boston-based musician. Um, so he, he actually worked with me. He, he's one of these all-man band musicians. He can actually um, take a vocal from me and build up an entire uh, you know, band behind it. So on one of the tracks, I'm, I'm, I'm using a pseudonym on the track, but I do sing one of the tracks. <laughs> I'm not much of a vocalist, but on this one, I, I don't need to be. You had trouble putting your name on it? Yeah. Yeah, it didn't seem quite right. I, I, I write too many things anyway. I should, I should use a pseudonym now and then. Um, but yeah, that, that's, in, that's actually in the form of a, uh, like a sort of 1940s crooner song. Okay. And then there's another one that's like very psychedelic, and then there's one that's very uh, brooding, like a like a a ballad, and then there's also one that's very soaring and romantic, and I I think commercial. I if somebody like Adele were to were to form this song, I think it could be a huge hit. Um, so um, in in fact, when when Dorothy put the music to that one, it's it's called Trust in Love. And uh, when I when I heard what she did with it, I thought, we need to do something to make this weirder, don't we? <laughs> and she said, well, we can talk about that at some point, but you'd be surprised, you know, the power that this has just on its own. And uh, and I think she's right. Just a straightforward presentation, I think, is going to be the best note to end on um, with this book. So I still haven't talked yet to PS Publishing about what the final shape of this thing is going to be, I, I would really like to be able to include a CD, you know, at least in the first certain number of books, maybe the first hundred or 200. Um, and then have everybody else, you know, 
get it from streaming because we'll be able to stream these songs as well. And and people seem to prefer to stream rather than buy. Of course, uh, of course, if you, uh, if you do put it out now, you're going to probably do a vinyl version, you know, because that's the yeah. uh, uh, multicolored vinyl. Yeah, well, if somebody wants to undertake the uh, the cost of such a venture, I mean, just going into all this excess with with pr record production and all this stuff has take, been taking me in new directions. That uh, you know, I really don't want to spend my life uh, pursuing that. Somebody once told me very wisely, you know, if if you love music, don't you know, make it a hobby. Just keep it as a hobby, because when it becomes business. Um, it takes some of the joy out of it. I'm finding that but, for filmmaking in general. Like it's, I'm trying to find a way of separating my day job and my uh, hobby. I, just because it's, it's just the stress that comes around it when you're hustling for work. Just, just the work you take. You just, you like, you have to detach yourself after a certain point. Yeah, but but there's nothing like you know, t finally hearing fully formed what you've been able to create this way it's in a whole new venue is, for me is this your first musical venture yeah i mean I've, I've done other things but they've never come out um and it's it's amazing to me that the raw material attracted collaborators of this caliber you know they're they're friends but you know these are important musicians and uh they're willing to participate and uh, you know, so I'm I'm just overjoyed at the at the authenticity that they're going to bring to the expression of this project. It's much more than it was on its own. Let's go back to uh, let's go way back. I have another question for you, Tim, because I don't I don't think we talk about this much. Is your your uh, you were right there uh, a pretty big comic book collector uh, reader, but you mm -hmm. didn't stay with it. You kind of uh, at some point did you like. Do the typical, I go to Mad, Nash Lampoon, Ramparts, or or you just totally thought, nah, comic books are not for me anymore, even though later you do the, you know, the, the throat sprockets and stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, it was, uh, is that, was that, a, was that like, I don't, was that an art form that you didn't want to keep up with, or it just outgrew it, or it's just... I'll tell you, at the, around the time when I sort of had to stop collecting comics because I left home and I basically had to leave my collection behind me. So I lost everything that I had by, by moving out. Um, it, it happened to coincide at a time when Marvel, uh, which was my favorite company, uh, was, was going through some terrible changes. Um, I remember that they were bringing in, they, they, I think lost, lost Jack Kirby. They'd lost Ditko. Um, they had, uh, they, they had had, uh, John Buscema, but suddenly there was Sal Buscema <laughs> coming in and drawing like John. Um, and the stories, uh, Stan Lee was, was no longer working on the stories and you get people like Roy Thomas and, uh, uh, Jerry, uh, Jerry Conway, and Jerry Conway. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, and they they had their good issues, but they also, you know, went in some odd directions. And I remember, uh, I mean, I, I was the most devout Spider-Man reader. And then issue 100 came along, and at the end of the story, he discovered that he had eight legs, you know, eight arms. And I thought, okay, I can believe a man walking up the side of a building, but I can't buy this, you know. And I just stopped buying Spider-Man for a while and then happened to just come back to it before uh, Gwen Stacy was killed, which was a huge traumatic thing. 
And the first time that I'd seen comic books really employed, you know, to get at a reader's emotions on that level. Um, so it was a time when they were taking some big chances, but it just wasn't the golden age of Marvel anymore. Um, and uh, I had never particularly liked DC, although I liked some of the quirky stuff that Ditko did when he went over there, like the Creeper and the Hawk and the Dove. Um, and I loved the Thunder Agents uh, from Charlton, and I, and I loved Herbie, um, the Ogden Whitney book. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's it's like when my interest started turning toward you know adult fiction, literary fiction. I sort of left comic books behind uh, for a while. And um, when I started writing comics on my own uh, for, for Steve Bissett, I, you know, did a lot of sort of, you know, reconnoitering, looking around, seeing what other people were doing. And Steve let me see some of Alan Moore's scripts so that I could just get the format, um, you know, of to write. And we laugh now when we think of all the people whose work he could have shown me as a format, you know. Wow. Yeah. That's where I got the idea to turn in 32 page scripts <laughs> and expect an artist to just swallow it, you know. Um, but uh, so there were things happening. I mean, you had left it. I mean, I understood. I, I see your, your perspective. Kirby had left and, and Dicko was gone and uh, and uh, Stan eventually goes out to Hollywood. So, you know, but there was things happening in the in the Bronze Age and onward. But um uh, as an art form, where do you where do you stand? Uh, and of course, you know we got this. Uh, you know Martin Scorsese saying that you know the comic book movies are not uh, cinema. Um, I mean, eight year, eight year little Ted Haycraft, Teddy Haycraft, his mind is blown to see these things come to life so vividly. But I'm even actually I was telling Shane and some of my friends how the last couple ones I've seen, I'm getting fatigued by it. Uh, yeah, the uh, the fatigue is kicking in a little bit. Uh, See, for me, I, I don't really get a kick out of seeing these, like, drawings become real, you know, through CG. Mm -hmm. um, no matter how good they are, they'll never be Jack Kirby drawings. <laughs> they'll never be Steve Gitto drawings. Good point. And in, in trying to become more three-dimensional, more real, they lose the personality of the art that drew me to the comics in the first place. And the comics are also, I mean, the movies are far more dense than the comics ever were. And what I especially resent is that all of the superheroes they groom become the pet dogs of S.H.I.E.L.D. You know, so it's like, don't even think of, you know, being independent of the government. You know, the government has got your ass. Uh, and, you know, you are our pet. You are, not, you are not a vigilante, you are not a free agent. And that was the whole joy of the comic book, you know, for people to have another identity that, where they didn't have to answer to authority figures, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. so the movies, no, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm disenchanted to... with the movies because, uh, you know, I That's remember I mean. liking the first couple of uh, Sam Raimi Spider-Man films, um, but all of these later ones, you know, I, there are several that I haven't even bothered to to look at. I haven't seen Captain Marvel. I haven't seen the last two Avengers movies. They just don't attract me. No, we just Shane and I. We've had uh, we've had some interesting discussions with a professor from a campus. Oh, we've had so many, and he brought up the military-industrial complex thing. Um, 
I had a, a guest on last episode. Uh, he was a, a Jacob Johnston, who uh, turns out to be from Evansville, and he worked at Marvel. And he was telling, we started talking about the um, scene in the first Raimi Spider-Man where you just have two masks talking to each other, and mm. this is a thing that's for two D. This is not a, this is not something that's supposed to have motion behind it. And all of the heroes have to pose without their masks on because, you know, the actors want their faces to be seen. They don't want to subsume themselves in character. I mean, they're not Lon Chaney. <laughs> you know, if Lon Chaney was still acting today, he would say, of course, I want to subsume myself into character. I don't want you to know it's me. But now everybody has to have their their movie star close up. Yeah, that's the other pain. The, the big bucks and they really want the mask off. Um, but yeah, yeah I, uh, I just um, it's amazing to see this stuff. But I, I've also, the, the, the part of me is that I, I always use this phrase with my friends, the tyranny of nostalgia. I keep on, you know, I, the part of me, I, you know, is like I'm a 61-year-old man, and, I'm, and why do I want to see guys in pajamas beating each other up? Uh, mm -hmm. and, but there's some of that, you know, I, it's the artwork that's still on my shelves. I have two, three shelves full of Jack Kirby artwork, and I still go to it. I still look at it. So I'm just marveled, amazed by this guy. Or yeah. Nicole, uh, and you know, and a lot of it is just people punching each other out in different ways. I mean, it's it's very dynamic, but I mean, just graphically, it's so fulfilling. It's so pleasing to look at. Plus, the narratives about people punching each other and that this solves a problem somehow is just <laughs> yes. yeah. Um, I did. This is a broader question, but this probably is a good last question to ask. Um, what it's a broad one though. What do you think this is the state of film criticism right now oh, yeah. versus, I mean, publishing uh, stuff online, people making, uh, you know, stuff on YouTube. I mean, I, we, what, I mean, one of the constant themes of this show is that movies, I worry that they just don't mean as much to people anymore. They're not water cooler stuff. It's not we can't go back to the 70s. So I would just wonder what do you think that means for film criticism? I honestly don't know, because. <clears throat> People aren't um, aren't really reading. Um, they don't have the same relationship to criticism as readers that have always been around before, um, where you would sit in a chair and you would read something in depth. When people go to look up something on the the internet, they they can find they might find an essay that they want to read, but I know from looking at my own blog page uh, stats that. People that stop to read something will glance over it. They won't take time to read every detail because the internet impels people to keep moving, move on, um, you know, find something more interesting if you can, uh, before people will actually settle on something and, and spend time absorbing it. So I think there's a, a more superficial uh, response and that leads to people expressing themselves in bullets rather than in points that, you know, are taking time to be, you know, carefully, meticulously structured and expressed, you know? So I find that even from when, when my wife asked me to explain things like the, from, from news stories that I've picked up, I find that my own understanding of the stories is largely constructed from headlines and first lines of articles and, and don't really, you know, meshed together in, in, in the real sense. Um, I've got a sense of a sense, but you know, I, I can't really discuss these things in, in, in close detail. 
you know, serious detail. And I think that that may come through in a way that people are absorbing criticism now that people are seeing, um, you know, I like I don't I don't know how many people really listen to audio commentaries, although they seem to be doing their part in keeping uh, Blu-ray and DVD discs in print. I think that if if it wasn't for the supplementary material on these discs, that they would be having a harder uh, time competing with streaming outlets because people are always about convenience. And uh, these these items also take room to store, especially for collectors who have been collecting them for decades. So, you know, streaming becomes more attractive just as a sense of, you know, you know, this won't occupy any space. Um, it's an it's it's an attractive uh, facet, but um, you know I don't know. I, honestly, since I stopped publishing Video Watchdog, I haven't read a lot of film criticism. Um, I, I get a couple of the uh, the major film magazines, but I, I really just glance through them. It's rare that I will actually read something from beginning to end. That... Um, so I think the internet has sort of trained me to you know have a certain disregard for. Uh, that kind of information. What really interests me as a critic is what I'm doing myself and and what I'm learning myself. So it all has to do with a one-on-one -on -one relationship to me and the movie and the facts surrounding it. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. So, um, Tim Lucas, I wanted to thank you for being on the podcast. Sure, thank you very much, Shane. Thanks, so Thanks, Tim. I'm sure we'll be talking soon. Ted, take care. Yeah, tell Donna I said hi, please. Great meeting you guys. Okay, thanks.